I'm Vincent Williams. I'm Len Webb. And we're your hosts of The Michelle Mission. Two men, one podcast, every Black film ever made. This is our podcast documentary, The Class of 1989. 1989 was an important year in film when Hollywood would change forever thanks to six films about race. Some are obvious, like Do the Right Thing, Harlem Nights, and Glory. A few might surprise you, like A Dry White Season, Lean on Me, and Driving Miss Daisy. Join us as we explore what happened and what changed because of the class of 1989. Ladies and gentlemen, it is my privilege and honor to officially introduce for the first time graduating class. There's only one boss in this place, and that's me, the HNIC. Much a matter what happens tomorrow, I'm going to blow your pinky toe. Oh, now you're going to shoot me in my pinky toe. Lord knows. I tell you the story. Right hand, left hand. Good and evil. Hate, love. These five things, they go straight to the soul of man. I would never start with the individual artist. It's definitely symptomatic of our culture. You know, we live in a patriarchal, misogynistic society. Mayori Holmes is founder of the Black Star Film Festival. Women are overlooked and under, you know, resourced always, definitely 30 years ago. And so artists, unless they work really hard, are going to make work that is reflective of the culture in which they exist. She is generous about how these six films represent Black women. I am not shocked, even looking backwards, to, you know, see that this is the case. And I think, you know, unless they were pressed, it occurred to me, because our dear Bell Hooks passed, that her work kind of first came to prominence as I was graduating high school. The late Bell Hooks was an author, a scholar, and social activist best known for her writings on race, feminism, and class. She examined the intersectionality of race, capitalism, gender, and what she described as their ability to produce and perpetuate systems of oppression and class domination. In the first of her many works, Ain't I a Woman? Black Women and Feminism from 1981, Hooks wrote, racism has always been a divisive force separating black men and white men. And sexism has been a force that unites the two groups. That means all the filmmakers you've just named, they didn't read Bell Hooks. They didn't have an opportunity to like interrogate their gaze and think about how they were making work. And I imagine that many of them, I know Spike has definitely tried to change the way that they make work. And so the project of Blackness in America has often come down to is, you know, sexism more important than racism, more important than classes. You know what I mean? It's like we have to think about all these things. It's never that simple. But I imagine those artists made those films at that time. They were things that they were wanted to explore. They are not great (laughs) in their inclusion or representation of women. But I would say the problem is not that their films aren't great about representing women. The problem is that more women didn't have the same opportunities that those men had to make more inclusive stories. But I would also love for there to be a wider field. Inclusive. That's what it all comes down to, isn't it? 
It's really challenging because, you know, I love Harlem Nights. I love Do the Right Thing. I don't like to think about films that have white directors, but Glory was a great film. I also really enjoyed Driving Miss Daisy. I just want to make more space for more voices because say there is a filmmaker that is more sensitive than if they also have the opportunity to make work, then maybe we can support them instead of the one who's sexist. You know what I mean? Like, I think policing people's practices is problematic because then you're asking people to be inauthentic and you're asking people to speak to something that they maybe aren't thinking about. That doesn't mean they can't be called out. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't wish that they had a broader palette, but I'm not really interested in like looking back at this work and saying like, why wasn't mother sister a bigger character? You know what I mean? Like that's, that's not what I want to do. You could call that generous or some people might also call it apolitical on my part. I don't think so, but you know. I mean, sure, we want people to be authentic, but sometimes authentic can go left and be abrasive. Let's hear from Elizabeth Wellington, who covers the arts and culture beat for the Philadelphia Inquirer and who minces no words about one of our more celebrated directors. I'm not the Spike Lee fan. Like, I like Spike Lee, but there's always something in a Spike Lee movie that makes me cringe. You, and usually it's his relationship and his depiction of women. Like, I'm like, Spike, get over it. I always leave a Spike Lee movie feeling like let down. Like, really, this is what you think of us, Spike? Really? What specifically about Do the Right Thing were you uh, cringing over? When, when it comes on, you see Rosie Perez dancing, right? Like, that the big dance scene. And you're just like, what is she doing? Like, is this new? It felt like um, in Living Color. Like, it was just that from that time and that era where she does the dancing. And I think she's so stereotypical. They, they make her like a stereotypical Puerto Rican. And I don't even see the point. You know what I mean? Like, I think we're all in Spike Lee's jacked up imagination. And I don't want to be there. <laughs> Spike Lee's women never have agency. They're always at the mercy of Spike Lee's masochistic male characters who are going through their own stuff and can never see what they're doing to their women until it's too late or they have no choice. That's just me looking through my 2021 lenses. And I like Rosie Perez, but I was so irritated by her because her accent was two octaves higher than it needed to be. So what he's saying about race relations is right, but it's coming through such a filtered, the filter is so, doesn't agree with me. Yeah, we'd like to give Spike the benefit of the doubt. He was a very young man when he made Do the Right Thing. And it's a powerful, important film. But as a more mature man, his lens in 1989 was questionable. Here's a 2022 interview with Rosie Perez, done by Terry Gross of PBS's Fresh Air, that underlines how intention and practice might not jibe. I mean, in fairness to Spike, I did agree to the nudity. He had to ask permission. My father couldn't make it to New York. And I was like, thank God, because I didn't want to tell him. Um, but my brother-in-law, my sister's then husband, um, said, I'll talk to him. And I'm going, oh, my gosh. And my brother-in-law, God is so very scary guy. And... And he sat down and Spike had to ask him and we negotiated the nudity. There was supposed to be more nudity. And um, and we negotiated down to what you saw on screen. But at the time when it was done, in the middle of it, 
I was fine with all the other body parts. And when it came to my breast, I just felt exploited. And I, I had thoughts of my father swirling around in my head. And I just started crying. And Ernest Dickerson yelled cut. And Spike was very angry. Ernest Dickerson was a cinematographer when Do the Right Thing. A longtime collaborator of Lee's, this was their third film together, after She's Gotta Have It in School Days. Dickerson was arguably Lee's most trusted colleague. And Ernest Dickerson was like, God bless him, because he, was, he said, he goes, stop, this is enough, Spike. We got it. This isn't right. And I got up and Ruth Carter put a rope around me and she gave me the biggest hug. And Spike was so confused. He goes, but you knew what I was doing. You agreed to it. And I said, yeah, but it was just too much. It was just too much. It was just too much. I remember saying that to him. And and I it was upsetting. And the thing is, is that we didn't have a big fight over it. Um, we had a, a conversation. I give him that credit. And he went and he said, I'm sorry, I didn't I didn't realize. And I said, it's OK. And we finished the day. While what made it to film definitely resonated with a lot of people, it scarred Perez a bit. The violation she felt over the scene was a violation of herself by herself. In a June 2000 feature in The New York Times, read by Marisol Rios, she explains her self-loathing at the time and how it was swept away by her very next project. It wasn't really about taking off my clothes, but I also didn't feel good about it because the atmosphere wasn't correct. And when Spike Lee puts ice cubes on my nipples, the reason you don't see my head is that I'm crying. I was like, I don't wanna do this. And the reason why I cried was not so much because I felt violated as because I was angry at myself because I wanted to say, say something. Get up. So that's how I felt violated. I felt like I violated myself. But then I went and took my clothes off again for white men can't jump. But that was because it was totally my decision. I felt totally comfortable. And the director was so cool. And Woody Harrelson was like, well, whatever you want is cool with me. So there I feel empowered by it. But with Do the Right Thing, it was like, now I'm the object. Here's the shot. In many ways, Rosie Perez's character is the object, the shot. There's no more agency to Tina than to Mother Sister, the ever-present sage who lives on her windowsill, played by Ruby D. Graceful as ever, but essentially the watcher. Observe, do not interfere. Nevertheless, Perez is still beholden to Lee for the career that his film gave to her. Again, from Fresh Air. And I am forever grateful. And, and Spike and I, and people always think like, you know, why are you disrespecting Spike Lee? I'm not disrespecting Spike Lee. I'm telling you the truth of what had happened. And things can happen and you don't need to cancel him. He and I worked it out, you know, and, and, and he apologized. We hugged it out and we're still friends to this day. Bobby Booker of WRTI Temple Radio believes that do the right thing does the right thing overall. I was even recently in a coffee shop down like 16th and Jackson, still very, very, very 
Italian, um, and this place makes great coffee. And I'm looking around, and they've got like a wall of fame. It's nothing but white men, Italian men primarily. And and I I said not even for no black folk. I'm like, well, what about women? Let's just at least get in there a little bit on a gender equity tip. And and that was this year. Okay. So for do the right thing though, um, all of that felt real because it was the experience that I was living. And there's some other things that I've really dug about that that movie too. And we talk about gender parody. I've really I I, I dug Rosie. She was a formidable presence and not taking no BS from Mookie, who's pigeon-toed. I loved it. Pigeon-toed walking down the street. I loved it. These were these were people in my neighborhood, too. You know, the fire hydrant, everything, everything about that. But I also just enjoyed that these were, were real people having real lives. Folks have a lot to say about Do the Right Thing from this year. What's that saying? Great art evokes a response. But what about the other films? Well, some of the other films literally make women all but vanish from the story. You're talking about glory. And the case of the missing brothers. Which I investigate along with co-producer Mo Poplar. We are here um, with Carla Brothers, an actor, a working actor, which is always our favorite type of actor. So, Carla, what was your experience like, even though the the footage, unfortunately, may have may have been cut, but what was your experience working on the set of Glory? Oh, my God, it was amazing. I love period pieces, you know, and that was exceptional. Can you tell us more about the role of Charlotte Fortune as scripted? In real life, she was she was an acquaintance and uh, the the lead actor i mean the lead character there who was played robert gould shaw who was played by matthew broderick she was an educator an abolitionist and you know for people that don't know what abolition is to abolish slavery you know so she had a pretty amazing life uh she was but a also a black woman right oh of course well that's right i mean that. because when we say abolitionist you um, know, yeah, yeah, we yeah, could be talking about people who theoretically think right. slavery's you know probably an immoral thing and then we could be talking about people who have skin in the game. Right, right. Well, yeah, she was. She was a little darker than right. me. And, um, yeah, she was a black woman and, um, you know, was very, her family, and she were very much against slavery and did everything they could to fight for the end of slavery and also to, um, you know, be educators and personally take a part in in doing something about people that were disenfranchised. Now, in terms of the film, she was still an educator. The scenes that I did were a couple scenes. They were having a there was a love sort of this love they met at a ball, and there was the sparks were flying, and you know they had a lovely conversation. There was this beautiful scene that was shot at like I shot at like four a.m. in the morning, the sunrise, and oh my god, it was so romantic and stuff. And you know, it's really about it's a courtship. And I think, you know, as Ray Fleckman, the script was very much when she he talks about, well, I'm sure things must be difficult for you, or even he, who's very empathetic as a white man at that time, really doesn't understand. You know, she has to kind of catch him, you know, in a very nice way, kind of put him in his place, like don't assume certain things because, you know, you have a limited understanding. 
my part was like kind of all the scenes were all together. It was like, you know, he took like a weekend off and we spent every day together doing stuff, you know. Right. Like, you know, he married her or he was a, she was a small-term girlfriend or something like that. But, and I, I think it was probably in there, her character was in there to show, even though he, this white man, really, you know, he was the the, 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 the colonel, so to speak, of this all-black um you know, they put them in front of everybody else, you know, but they were these heroes, these unsung heroes that, you know, fought for the cause and died. I mean, they literally went, they knew that they were marching towards their death. And he went right along with them. So he was obvious in a pretty exceptional white man at that time, but even her character is showing them that you're making assumptions about, don't assume you know my life. Because that didn't happen historically, right? No, it didn't. They were never involved romantically at all. So I chalked it up at that time to the fact that a love interest is much more interesting, you know, because it's people want to see love and with all this fighting and killing, but they just want to have some tenderness and all of that. That's why I'm thinking the part was in there. Charlotte Porton was not biracial, so to speak, but she was like complected with a curly, you know, hair, et cetera, et cetera. So obviously she was mixed with something. And, and you know, um, I don't, I, I, you know, I don't even think the thinking went that far. I think they thought it was a good thing, you know? I, like we, our perspective now, over 30 years later, is we're much more savvy about all that. But at that time, it was like, you know, I think it was viewed like, oh, wow, this is this is pretty amazing um, because it just was a lot of, you know, even though it was a black cast, it's you don't think of it as being a black movie. Do you? In Lean On Me, they literally make a fictional woman the main antagonist for Joe Clark because systemic racism wasn't enough. You need a black woman to put her finger on the scales. What happened this morning is an outrage. My boy's no criminal. He and those children belong in school, not back out on the street. children are smart they're just discouraged about what chances they got out there what kind of jobs they got waiting for them now what kind of chance do they have he insulted the black football coach the man's gone crazy harlem knights can't really call its depiction of black women progressive the female leads della reese and jasmine guy wear their anger in different ways but it's still the summation of their characters. So that's what this is about. You're supposed to kill me. Yes. And you would make love to me first, then shoot me. I'm sorry, Vernest. It's only business. That role actually to me was kind of non-Jasmine guy because I think that might be the only time I've ever seen her not be like be a bad guy. Like I just felt like it was a Robert Gibbons role, not a Jasmine guy role. But then again, they wanted her to be Creole. I didn't think her performance was bad I, I, or good. I just thought it was, it wasn't a performance that she would have normally done. And I haven't seen her do anything like that since then. Well, what do you think about the roles of the women in general in the film? Hmm. Hmm. Well, it did unnerve me when Annie Murphy 
Ponce de la Reese in the face. Because there's something about men fighting women like they would fight a man that I find disturbing in any period. No matter how bad she is, she's still like an older lady. And then he pulled out a gun and then he shot her toe off. He shot me in my pinky toe. I know. I'm gonna put what's left of my foot in your ass. I'm gonna kill him, sugar. Please, be careful. Get I'm gonna kill him out. Don't Just kill him. Just relax. Oh, if I get up from here. I didn't really love that. It would have been interesting if they had like a, a beautiful woman gangster. Not like Delores who was in charge of the hoes, you know, that because that's her term. Like I was in charge of the hoes and and I don't steal and you know, stuff like that. I think the it was the movie was teeming with male chauvinism, but how much of that was true to the error and how much of that was what was going on in the eighties, late eighties and early nineties anyway. That's what I was going to be. When you say true to the era, did you mean the era of that in which the film is set, the 20s, mm -hmm. or were you sp speaking specifically of the late 80s and 90s? I think it was true to both. I th well, I think the machismo in the 20s had a different feel from the machismo of the 80s and 90s, just because I think the machismo in the 80s and 90s was stiffed in like pop culture and loose. Like, I don't know if they would have loosely used the word, the B word, as much in the 20s as they would have in the 90s you know what I mean like my 90s year was used to that kind of discussion but I don't know how accurate that was in the 20s but I think there were definitely women gangsters in the 20s who weren't necessarily running the whole house you know right. women who were running numbers in Harlem right you know the women back then were bootlegging and they weren't necessarily big and brash like Della Reese all the time so I think the machismo was definitely 90s kind of focus, but, but a throwback. So you know, we're dancing around the elephant in the room. You've got something to say about the feminist icon that won Jessica Tandy an Academy Award for Best Actress? The sign of womanhood, Miss Daisy. We'll speak more about that in another episode. There's another elephant in here? Well, we've talked about women as drawn by male directors, black and white. But we have a black woman director in Usane Palsy, who released her first studio film in 1989, A Dry White Season. This film doesn't have a lot to say about women, black or white. Film critic Tim Cockshell puts it into context. A, a Dry White Season is an interesting film in that Zan Palsy is the director. Mm -hmm. And and she's doing she's doing a whole bunch of firsts here too. She's you know she she drug Marlon Brando out of retirement for this movie. She's the first black woman director to direct an actor, Marlon, to 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 an Academy Award nomination and to make a film mostly actually set in in uh, in South Africa. She she was she was in, she was engaged on a whole lot of firsts and that has to be recognized. Jaw broken, his nose broken, his cheekbone crushed. Must have hit the bars when he tried to jump out of his window. You know, and we see what happens to these to these African people, these black South Africans, I mean, particularly at the beginning of the movie. When they're all attacked at that school, when they go to the little demonstration, they're shot in the back and everything. And we see them suffer all these brutalities. Uh, and we see them in the docket in court. And, and, and you know, and there, there are a few interesting characters. But essentially, 
we're watching, what we're watching is the transformation and the plight of some white folks mm-hmm. who are coming to understand where they live and how they're living and what's happening to these black folks. And, and you know, so, so to, to that extent, um, uh, you know, A Dry White Season is a film to talk about. Uh, Uzian policy, very important. But it's still a film about how white people feel. And it doesn't just focus its lens on white people. As Maori Holmes notes, it's primarily white men. I have friends who have been in these rooms, right, where they're trying to get a script uh, made and they're told by a network executive, you need to add white people to the script, right? So that may have happened to her for all we know. She might have gone in there wanting to tell the story of Mandela or, you know, somebody else, and they may have said, we can't do that, but if you make it about this Afrikaner, then we can get your story told, right? I mean, the same as Glory. You're talking about the regiment and it's focused on the white boy, right? But that's the way the story gets made. And it's interesting when you say the word market because, you know, we very much assume that that's what the market wants, but we know it's not what the market wants. It's what the executives are comfortable with. And then that becomes what the market has access to. And those are two very different things. And I understand completely that as a first, 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 first black woman, first this, first that, first with the studio, all of that, she was in a box like no other box, you know. Uh, They had her jammed up. You know, we're going to let you make this movie, sister. But we're going to let you make this movie, sister. You know, so don't get, you know, uh, that and still. Uh, a movie full of good intentions, but still a movie about, you know, Donald Sutherland and Susan Sarandon. It's still a movie about that. So, you know, appreciate it. But no, it does not live alongside Do the Right Thing and Harlem Nights for me. So we can clearly see that 1989 was a watershed moment for Black film but maybe not for Black women in film. I don't know. We're clear that two years later, Melvin Van Peebles' son, Mario Van Peebles, will come out with New Jack City, a decidedly Black film with a decidedly Black perspective. But let's not forget that in the same year, Julie Dash brings us Daughters of the Dust, a much greater work of art coming right out of the L.A. Rebellion film movement. Yuzane Palsy is the first Black woman to direct a studio film. Julie Dash is the first Black woman director to have her film receive a wide theatrical release. On a film made for less than a million dollars. All about Black women. We also get Just Another Girl on the IRT in 1992. Criminally underrated. Waiting to Exhale in 1995, The Watermelon Woman in 1996, Eve's Bayou in 1997. And Whoopi Goldberg cements her place as a movie star for the ages in Ghost and Sister Act 1 and 2. And we see a lot more of the amazing Alfre Woodard in films such as Crooklyn and Down in the Delta. So maybe Black women saw Lean On Me, Do the Right Thing, and Harlem Nights the same way as Black people in general saw Driving Miss Daisy and Glory. They saw something missing. In 1989, they weren't invited to the party. 
so they started their own. That's it for this episode of the Class of 1989. Tune in next week for Spike and Eddie, Brooklyn Be Brooklyn. Class of 1989 is produced by Lynn Webb, Vincent Williams, and Mo Poplar. Written by Lynn Webb, Vincent Williams, and Maurice Poplar. Editing by Lynn Webb. Mixing, mastering by Chris Bonella. Production help from Jordan Aaron. Marketing by Joni Deutsch, Matt Keeley, and Annabella Pina. Music by Alexa Gold. Art by Tom Grillo. Special thanks to Dan Christel. Executive produced by Jeff Umbro and the Podglomerate. All right, ladies and gentlemen, until next time, he's Vince, I'm Len, and in parting, we say, we'll see you when it's time to meet again.